And so the fact that suffering exists means that either God isn't all-powerful, in which case he's not God, or God is not all-loving, in which case he's not the God of the Bible. And so for so many people, um, suffering means that there cannot be a God, or at least not one that we can trust. And so these philosophical arguments have been made. There are famous um, really evangelistic atheists out there that try to hold our feet to the fire and say, you need to be able to respond to this um, because they've got this philosophical um, argument worked out. And I think for even more people, though, it's not philosophical. This question of why is deeply personal. It's deeply personal. That for so many people, it's, it's not even, it's not logic, it's not rationality, it's, it's, it's nothing like that. It's, how can there be a God if what happened to me, in light of what happened to me? How can God be real in light of what I went through? How can you say that God cares about me? In light of what happened, in light of what was done to me, in light of what I'm living in right now. For so many of us, we wake up and we are faced every morning with the reality of suffering, of difficulty, of hurt, of anguish, of betrayal, and we face every day. How can God be real in light of all of that? God and suffering don't go together. I mean, why? Why do these things happen? And the Bible speaks to this question, and it speaks to it in so many ways. Um, there have been times in my own life where I have scrambled to try to defend God, and I felt this really visceral need to make sure that I have the right answer for someone who asks this question, to make sure that I know exactly what to say and can help reason with somebody or show them a Bible verse that would help justify God in the midst of their suffering. Um, and, and what I've realized is that there isn't a single answer when it comes to God and suffering. But that doesn't mean that, that the Bible's silent about this. That doesn't mean that God hasn't clearly communicated to us. When we come to look at the Bible, what we find actually is there are dozens and dozens of ways that the Bible talks about God and suffering. There are so many different ways, and it's because, I think it's because God knows that we are all different in what we've suffered, and we're all different in how we've responded to our suffering. God knows that there are all different kinds of suffering that we experience. And so God wants to speak to us over and over and over again. It's like in some places in the Bible, God will say this. And then other places in the Bible, God will say, look, this isn't going to fit for some of you. So let me say it this way. And then there's other places in the Bible where God says, actually, look at it like this. For the health of your soul and the health of our relationship. And so we're starting this series why? Because that's the question that we ask. And what this series is going to do is we're going to try to bring God and suffering together to try to understand the, the, the multifaceted way that God speaks to us in our suffering.
the way that God draws us, the way that God sometimes doesn't say anything, but just sits with us in our pain, in the difficulty. And so that's what this series is going to be. Um, and we're going to begin this series by looking at a, at a place, a passage that shows us a really good place to start or to restart when we suffer. Now, the passage we're going to look at, it's, it's directed toward Christians. And so uh, it's, so it, it's good because it's going to, I think it's going to feed the souls of Christians. And then for those of you who aren't Christians and, you, and you're, you're tuned in and you're not a Christian at this point, um, I'm so glad that you're a part of what we're doing. I'm so glad that you're here with us. You're going to get a chance to sort of look over the shoulders of Christians to see what a relationship with Jesus looks like and how it impacts the way that you live. And so, and, and you're going to feel drawn into, like as Jesus seeks to speak to his people in their suffering, Jesus is going to invite you to step forward also um, into his presence as we see what a relationship with Jesus looks like. So we're going to look today at Psalm 23. Now Psalm 23 is famous because of its very first line. Um, and so, uh, and this is a, it's a song. Or it's a song that tells us both where to start and where to restart. That's the title of this, of this message. And this is a song whose lyrics paint a big picture of God in all of life, including suffering. Um, as Lainey and I have been, as, as we have raised our kids, um, there have been times where we've taught our kids particular verses in the Bible to help them grow, to help their faith to grow, to teach them about God, how he feels, what he's like, um, and what he wants from us. Uh, so there's been times when you just teach them a verse. You tell them to memorize this verse. Uh, and you just sort of practice it with them and they memorize it. But then there have been other times when we have gone out of our way to get longer passages of the Bible uh, to teach our kids to memorize larger passages. And Psalm 23 is one of those passages that I really, really, really wanted our kids to write onto their hearts. And I knew, too, that as I taught my kids to memorize longer passages of Scripture, that it would also get written on my heart, too. And so this is a passage. It's a chapter in the book of Psalms. Um, it's six verses, so it's not really, really long, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a little bit bigger. And so you can sort of feel the context. And so we're going to walk through this. It's really, again, it's a good place. It's a good place to start and to restart when we are suffering. It, it brings God and suffering together. And so I want to read the psalm to you. So if you have a Bible um, or on your phone, I would encourage you to get a copy of the psalm that will be yours when this message is over, because I think this is one of these passages that you're going to want to have quick and ready access to. And so if you need to grab your phone, get on the YouVersion app, or grab a Bible, um, turn to Psalm 23. We're going to read through it all at once, and then we're going to walk through it together. And so this is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. We're just going to scratch the surface of this, and I hope that I can give this psalm to you so that you can find it to be comforting for you in the midst of your suffering. It starts with a relationship. The Lord, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. We see here that, that David, who is the author, David, who was anointed to be king and then became the king of Israel and is famous as a man after God's own heart, David declares, the Lord is my shepherd. We see here that, that there, is a, there is a real relationship here. It's not master and subject. But God and David, there's a relationship here where in the image of a, of, of a pasture with sheep, David's saying, I'm a sheep and God is my shepherd. And so there's a real relationship here between David and God. And God is inviting us by singing this song, by, by knowing this song. He's saying, I want a relationship with you. I am responsible for you. I want to be your leader. I want to be your guide. I want to be the one that, that takes, and the rest of the psalm describes what it means to have God as a shepherd. But verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Because of my relationship with God, I don't need anything. Think about that. Because I have a relationship with God, I don't need anything. Because I have God, nothing else matters. Because God is in my life. The only thing that I, maybe the only thing that I lack is more of Him. <laughs> and if I have Him, I don't need anything else. That is the cry of faith. This is the relationship that God wants with us. That we have him and he is more than enough. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So here we see, because I have this relationship with God, he feeds me well. I'm a sheep in green pastures. There is abundance of grass for a, for a, for a sheep. Um, for us, he feeds our souls and gives us quenching water. Water to quench our thirst. And so what we see here, he makes me lie down. And he leads me beside still waters. This is peace. This is rest. This is Jesus 
caring for us so much that he would nourish our soul. God does this. The green pastures of his word, of the Bible, it feeds our souls. The community that we have, other people that can encourage us, who can challenge us, who can confront us at times. I mean, these are green pastures. These are still waters. When life is chaotic, when things are out of control, when there is too much uncertainty, we can stop and we can spend time with God. We can read, we can pray. And so for some of us, this is us alone with Jesus. For others of us, this is us with people. I mean, it is amazing. Um, our life groups have grown since the quarantine. There are people, and, and I feel this way. Like when I think about my group, or when I think about there are certain people that when I have a meeting scheduled with them, <laughs> I look forward to it. I have this sense that, oh man, I can, I can sort of, I can just lay it all down. Because they care for me. And this is Jesus working in us and through us to care for each other. So very often, the green pastures and the still waters are us and God. And they're us with each other. Um, and so, verse 3 goes on. It says, he restores my soul. So green pastures, still waters. This is Jesus. He brings us back. He restores my soul. When we fall, this is not just how we start, but this is how we restart. He brings us back. He restores our soul. This is so important. It's so important. Because we all fail. We all fall. And we need to be encouraged we need to know that there's a way back and the Lord is our way back. That the way back is paved with forgiveness and grace and open arms and a celebration. Verse 3 goes on and says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I, I love this. I love this. God leads us in the paths of righteousness. Um, when we have a relationship with God, he wants us to know that we're loved. He wants us to feel his forgiveness. He wants us to feel accepted so that we don't doubt his love. That's what grace is. Justification is the theological term that says we're accepted by God and treated as though we're as righteous as Jesus. Without changing anything. Just, just committing to Jesus and following him. And yet God has plans for our lives. God has plans for us. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to become righteous. Now, this doesn't mean self-righteous. This doesn't mean better than other people. But this means honest and humble and hungry for him. This means people who are strong enough, that have enough from God that they can serve others. The righteous, in the book of Proverbs, these are people who disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. And so God leads us in paths that make us look that way, that make us live that way. God wants so much more for us than we want for ourselves. We chase after stuff that just will not actually 
make us happy in the long term. But what God wants for us makes us significant. It makes us strong. It makes us powerful. It makes us unshakable. And so God will always lead us into the paths of righteousness. And it's a path that it, it involves a lot of hard work. To follow Jesus is not easy. Because of what God wants. He wants us strong and so he'll work us out. And he does this. Man, I love this. I love this last phrase. He does this for his name's sake. You know what this means? Um, this means that God does all this. Green pastures, still waters, restores my soul, paths of righteousness. He does all of this for his name's sake. And what that means is that when we become his children, God doesn't just forgive us, but he brings us into his family and he gives us his name. That we are adopted into his family. He is our father. He is the best, most loving authority we could possibly have. He is one who has all power and does everything for our good. And he does this. He does this for his name's sake. He wants us to live this way for his name's sake. This means that God has bound up his reputation in our transformation. God has bound up his reputation in our transformation. That there, there are stakes involved in us following Jesus in this way, in our spending time in the green pastures and in the still waters, in us walking the paths of righteousness, that our lives that are different, when God changes us, when God works in our lives, when God works in our hearts to make us like this, we are getting to put his work on display. We become works of God's art and of God's artistry. And so this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. That's not what God is looking for. That's not what God wants to build the world out of. God wants to build the new world out of people who are honest about their brokenness. They're humble. And then they're hungry for more of him. Like This is what discipleship is. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And when we do this, God's name is honored. God's name is hallowed. That God becomes known and famous in our city, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And so God does all this for his name's sake. It's because we bear his name. And we don't want to take that name in vain. We don't want to take that name and then not live differently because of what he's done for us. And so he does this for his name's sake. That God has bound his reputation in with our transformation. And so we have this amazing privilege of putting his work on display in our lives. Verse 4 is where things get real. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so look here, in the midst of this glorious, this um, 
magnifying of who God is and the relationship that we have with God, this beautiful image of God being shepherd, of us having nothing that we need that we don't have, right? Of us having all that we need and more, that God leads us in green pastures beside the still waters. It's kind of like a, I don't know, like a Thomas Kincaid painting, right? It feels like a needle point that your grandmother might have up on the wall. And obviously there are these things where Psalm 23 has been put in all sorts of art that's on all kinds of walls in the country. And it's this really serene and wonderful thing. But verse 4 says, hey, there are times when I will have to walk through Death Valley. This psalm is real about suffering. This psalm doesn't hide from suffering. This psalm doesn't say, well, let's just honor God. Let's just praise God. Let's just worship God. And then maybe people won't talk about the suffering stuff. No, no, it deals with it head on. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That in my life, on these paths of righteousness, in between the green pastures, when I am not near the still waters, I'm living in death. That in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the blessings of God, I go through death. From David's perspective, if you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you can see the the valleys of the shadow of death that he had to endure. David was chosen to be king and was anointed king and was promised by God that he would be the king. And then he spent the next decades of his life running out of fear because the current king, whose name was Saul, the current king started chasing him. The current king wanted to kill him he didn't want to be replaced. <clears throat> so David is saying here, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I know suffering. And so do we. Death is, it's everywhere. During this pandemic, we hear reports of how many people are literally dying. The shadow of death looms over all of us. And it has caused so many of us to cower in fear about catching this virus. So there's physical death. But I think death is... Anything that falls short of ideal. Anything that we lose. The ways that we're hurt. When we get hurt, it's like a little mini death. Sometimes there's not so many because sometimes we're hurt really badly. And so life is through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes it's what people have done to us. Sometimes death comes from the things that we do to ourselves. (laughs) 
And so we live in this and we face it and we admit it. We're honest about it. We're humble about it. And then we see the two words at the beginning of this verse. Even though. Even though. What's powerful here is that it's, it's real about suffering. It's real about death. It's real about the problems of life. It faces them head on. It admits them. But even though, even though suffering is real, even though pain is real, even though uncertainty abounds, even though there is so much in our lives that we wish was different, Even though all that's real, there is something even more real. It says, I will fear no evil. Why? The next five words are the key to the whole psalm. For you are with me. Friends, this is it. In this verse, David takes the suffering that he has gone through, running for his life, people who want him dead. He had armies chasing after him. Everywhere he went, it was relentless. Over and over and over again, he never had respite. He was always running. And yet, even though this is true, he's not afraid because God was with him. So we see here in this verse, God and suffering. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Friends, God is with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are God's tools of guidance and discipline. That in the midst of the shadow of death, in the midst of the valleys, that God is with us and he continues to guide us. He continues to discipline us and help us to become strong enough to get through. Sometimes he just carries us. Sometimes, I was talking to somebody this week and they were talking about just how difficult things have gotten. And they said, like, I should be able to handle this. And I was like, well, yeah, you're able to handle it until you can't. And it's okay when you can't. Because then God just picks you up and carries you. In this verse, though, we see the coming together of God and suffering. And in verse 5 is 
a description of how God is with us in suffering. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So in the ancient world, this is, these are images of blessing and abundance. And it's in the presence of my enemies. It's in the midst of the death in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of all of the problems and all of the pain and all of the frustration and all of the uncertainty, God prepares a table. It's like on Survivor when, you know, the, when a tribe earns a reward and they like literally deck out. You've got this island that's all rough and um, it's just wilderness and yet then they set a table and it's got amazing food, amazing drink, and there's an amazing celebration where they are restored and rejuvenated. This is what God does for us. We're going we're gonna to visit one of his main tables here in just a few minutes. But he says, you God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This means that while my enemies are looking in the midst of the suffering, I'm good because I'm with you. Your presence makes me feel like there is nothing that I need that I don't have. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So God doesn't just give you just barely enough to get by. It's not just rice, but it's a feast. It's a feast. And so in the presence of the suffering, God is there. He is with us. And so the conclusion is verse 6. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy. He's convinced that because God is with him, because God loves him, because he loves God, he's committed to Jesus. Mercy is, a, is the word for God's covenant love. It's, the, it, it's, like, it's like when people get married and they commit forever. They commit to love, honor, and cherish. Like that's what mercy is coming from God. And he's convinced that goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. That no matter what happens, no matter how bad the suffering gets, that God is with them. And his disposition is goodness and committed covenant love. And this is just the beginning. This is just the start that God has only begun to bless us. But that the fullness of his blessings are yet to come. They are still coming. <clears throat> there is more and more and more to come. Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher in the 1850s, said, every blessing that comes from God has a, it, it comes in a, in a gift box and it's wrapped and there's a tag on it. And the tag says, more to come. I forgive you and there's more to come. I adopt you into my family and there's more to come. I will restore your soul and there's more to come. That even though you are in the midst of suffering, I am with you and there's so much more to come. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and there's more to come. 
you're going to dwell with me forever in the new heavens and earth. Friends, this psalm gives us confidence. That's the design. It's designed to, to meet us where we are, to remind us that even though suffering is real, we don't have to fear because God is with us. That underneath the reality of our suffering is a deeper and more enduring reality that we know the God of history. And that he is with us. So what I want you to do this week, this is something that I did several times this week. I want you to take this psalm and maybe every day spend time and just read it until you can think of a time in your life when something in this psalm was true about you, was true in your life. So if you can think of a time when you knew that God was your shepherd and you didn't need anything but him, and think about that. Thank God for it. Spend some time um, thinking about that. And if writing is helpful, then write it out. If talking out loud is helpful, you can do it with somebody else. But spend time this week going through this psalm and rehearse the times in your life where this was your experience. Because as you do that, this psalm will become more and more of a defining reality for you in your relationship with God. And if you read this and you feel like this isn't your experience, then it may be time to start or to restart your relationship with God. Jesus wants to be your shepherd. He said that he was the good shepherd who would lay his life down for his sheep. And you have to understand that, um, that Jesus, this is John 10, verses 11 to 15, and Jesus says there that I will lay down my life for my sheep. As glorious an image as this psalm paints, Jesus endured the opposite of all of this on the cross. There were no green pastures on the cross. There were no still waters. Jesus was plunged into the chaos of the desert in his life and on the cross, metaphorically. Into the chaotic waters, he was drowned. His, his soul wasn't restored, but it was forsaken by God on the cross where he dealt with the sins of our lives. And he did that so that we would never be forsaken. So that we would know that there's a doorway back and he is that door back. So I invite you to give your life to Jesus. Commit your life to him and he will become your good shepherd. There was an ancient story um, of an old pastor in England in the 1800s. He was in a pub one night and he was talking with a group of people. They found out that he was a pastor and they asked him, hey, what's your favorite part of the Bible? And the pastor replied, Psalm 23 has been one of the greatest helps to me in my, and he got interrupted. There was this other guy who just jumped in and said, Psalm 23, I love that Psalm. I'm an actor and I've performed that Psalm in front of thousands of people. 
And so the crowd at the bar then said, hey, would you do a performance for us? And so he was given a microphone. He got up on the stage and he did this absolutely riveting performance of Psalm 23. And when he finished, there was a standing ovation in the bar. People cheered and they clapped. And this actor, he stepped down and he went to the pastor and he said, why don't you give us a recitation? And the rest of the crowd agreed, and so the pastor walked up on stage, and in an old, slightly hesitating voice, he began. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. When he was finished, no one clapped. No one cheered. But there wasn't a dry eye in the bar. And as he came down from the stage, that actor went to him and he said, I know the psalm, but you clearly know the shepherd. Friends, this is what I want for you. This psalm has been unbelievable help and medicine for my own soul in my own times of suffering. And I want to invite you to experience the shepherd, to know the shepherd through this psalm. So make this your own this week. And if you need help in doing that, just reach out to us. Use the Facebook chat, send us a direct message. We would love to help you to know the shepherd. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you Thank you for being our Savior, for being our Shepherd. When we know you, we do not want. Draw every person, every man, every woman, all the children that are watching. Jesus, draw them deeper into your presence so that they would be able to say this song and know you through it so that we would be able to live in this song it challenges us Jesus we confess that we don't always feel this way but we love you we ask you to make this even more real for us help each one of us this week to walk in this And help us, Lord, to do it together, to share what we're learning, to stay connected with each other so that we can encourage each other. Thank you that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because you are with us.